1: Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, we have a very special guest. I am talking to Aaron Oakes, who is the CEO of United Pet Care, which is an alternate type of business model within um, the veterinary space. We all in the startup land talk about Software companies, marketplaces, gig economy, blockchain, Coinbase, and we sometimes forget to look at innovations within business models and the importance of that. Uh, So we're going to be talking a little bit about United Pet Care. We're also going to be talking a little bit about something called a search fund, which is how this investment came to be. So with much ado, I'd like to present Aaron Oakes. Aaron, how are you doing?
0: Doing great, David. Thanks for having me on.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so Aaron, I'd love to know a little bit about yourself and your backstory and how you became a search funder and what is a search funder?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So reformed consultant, uh, and after about a decade advising and waiting for the door to close and other people to make decisions, kind of decided that it was time to bear some risk and take ownership of decisions myself. So left a job in corporate America, always had the entrepreneurial itch. And actually my uh, journey started or interest started in the pet space and that kind of spawned the interest in, in search. And I'll talk a little bit about how that operated. Um, we, so I left actually to start an unrelated business and, uh, doesn't register in the grand scale of COVID sob stories, but made it about 10 weeks and then the winds <laughs> changed. And, uh, my wife and I actually both ended up with a little bit of a professional reset and had not 10 per-
1: weeks. What, what happened in 10 weeks?
0: Uh, so we started the business about 10 weeks before COVID uh, and, which, uh, which business was it? So it was a small real estate investment fund Got and basically it. capital yeah, went right. away, it became impossible <laughs> to get debt. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And my wife actually also got laid off. She was in a corporate job. And so Mm -hmm. we, um, you know, we're fortunate enough. We could take a little bit of time and we said, Hey, what are we passionate about? And where do we see opportunity in the heavy air quotes, new normal. And we had adopted a pandemic puppy and just about everybody we knew had, um, my running joke, the four horsemen of COVID are either got married, got divorced, had a baby or adopted a pet, (laughs) (laughs) basically touched everybody between the ages of 20 and 50. Uh Um, and so, you know, we started looking into the trends and actually did um, through an SBA loan. So this would kind of be called a self-funded search. We were just looking for businesses specifically in pet uh, within Phoenix. We had relocated out here for, for my business and uh, you know, that we had an ethos that we stood behind. So we went through that process, acquired a little retailer uh, that my wife now runs. And after about three months, she booted me out of the business. I was no longer being helpful. Um, and so that was when, you know, I'd kind of fallen in love with the industry and wanted to find a business model uh, that was a little bit more aligned with my skill set and my experience. And so just to take a step back, the concept of a search fund is uh, one entrepreneur gets some capital in advance and gets that committed capital regardless of the business. There's some parameters, of course, around revenue profile and industry and things like that. Um, But then that person actually just spends a significant amount of time identifying that one business, which they will both go through the diligence and acquisition of and then also operate. Um, In my case, it was a little bit of a modified structure. So the capital had been lined up by another individual and they were in about the seventh eighth inning of the acquisition uh knowing that they were not going to operate it but they basically we found each other while they were pretty late in the process um with the you know operating model that once the transaction was completed i would take over
1: so okay so how does one choose a search funder because i'm sure this would be something that every entrepreneur and their mother would want is like hey just have a bunch of rich guys help me find a business, right? I mean, like, how, do, how like I mean, that, that seems too good to be true. So like, how does one pick a search funder and become, I guess, search fund quality?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, there are some pretty well trodden paths. And so I, I would say most typically, that's somebody who's coming directly out of business school. Um, there are communities now that have started to blossom particularly within stanford harvard some of the you know top tier business schools um and these investors have as you would imagine are incredibly data-driven and so there's a set of characteristics um both you know kind of from a resume perspective and then also psychographic in terms of you know the type of entrepreneur that would make uh that would make a good search funder it is a very different operating model and a very different kind of calling than starting something you know vc it's uh, much more singles and doubles than it is you know home runs and the the flame out rate typically is much lower so the idea is find a business that's been operating incredibly well but maybe within a geographic limitation or you know other constraint because generally if you don't have professional capital as a founder you're you know living off of the EBITDA and there are just some other kind of constrictions associated with the business. Um, But the kind of flip side of that is typically much lower growth rate. um, Oftentimes blue collar industries, kind of these operating businesses where most of the return is actually from an expansion of EBITDA multiple as opposed to massive growth. Mm -hmm. So it also takes somebody who is interested in truly getting their hands dirty in an operating role um, and is, you know, fine with maybe a little bit longer time horizon and a, a maybe a, a tighter band on the potential outcome vis-a-vis, you know, starting something on your own.
1: Yeah. So like a sadomasochist, right? Kind of profile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: So, so um, the psychographic profiling or the, you know, the founder, or excuse me, the entrepreneurial traits like, what did that look like? Because, you know, people are generally younger in their career, you know, they don't have a giant work experience. I'm sure you had consulting, of course, but like, what, what kind of stuff are they asking you? Is there psychological tests that are happening? I mean, are we doing like deep reference checks?
0: Deep, deep reference checks. Um, so I, you know, there were guys that were reaching out. I mean, LinkedIn is a, you know, is a beautiful thing in that regard. And I was hearing from folks, uh, 10, 15 years ago that were getting pinged by the investor base or the board as they were, as I was going through the process. Um, you know, I would say also from a, a personality inventory, I took predictive index. Um, and I think one of the longer ones where they actually have it, you know, arbitrated by a, by a professional. So they take it incredibly seriously. And, you know, as you would imagine the, uh, so much of that hinges on that marriage between both the board, the investor group uh, and the CEO, but also the CEO and the business. Um, And the instance of the, you know, kind of host rejecting the organ can be really high. You can have somebody who comes in with all the right ideas. The
1: host rejecting the the organ. That's really interesting. I love that that terminology.
0: Um, So just in the case of, you know, United Pet Care, my business, it had been operating since 1996. And a lot of the staff, I think the average tenure was, you know, seven or eight years, if not higher. So you have to be really cognizant of coming in and, uh, you know, kicking out tent poles because you don't know which one's holding the tent up. Exactly. And I think that's really what tempers a lot of folks who typically work in, you know, private equity or other kind of high achieving careers where you just kind of go in and assert things and it takes a little bit of some softer touch.
1: Yeah, you have softer skills for that. And you don't know where the bodies are buried, to your point. And you can't can't have everybody walking out either. That's right. Right. So you have to have somebody who's got those soft skills. I think that um, this is really, I'm putting an asterisk around this because I think that, the venture community, the growth guys like myself, could probably take a really good lesson in the search fund community's um book on founder selection. Because mm. I mean, generally we look at okay, what is the founder in relation to what they've built and how much traction they've had. And that kind of overshadows like the personality, the soft mm. skills, all these other kind of things. And I think that when you're dealing with, you know, the business being a, a different entity than the actual operator, um, it's a different lens, yeah, to look at somebody. And I think that, um, you know, as a as a search funder, you have to, you know, probably dig a lot harder on the founder or the, excuse me, the operator aspect than a VC does.
0: There's no concept to hide behind, right? So that's kind of the <laughs> yeah. you got to stand alone in the the spotlight for better or worse.
1: Yeah, that is uh, that's very interesting. I'm going to definitely pick your brain later about that. And so you're saying, so you. You went through the process, you went through all the background checks, they selected you, and then on parallel processing, United Pet Care was also being evaluated so you didn't have to find the deal.
0: That's right. So yeah, I uh, um, I did get lucky for sure. And from a lot of folks that you talk to in the search process, uh that is the most kind of psychologically grueling. You're basically on a 24 month time clock mm-hmm. um with this capital pre-committed and obviously some significant expectations associated with it. And so you're you know kind of on an island during that time. Um and you know it is also it's a very disparate skill set from actually owning and operating a business. And my partner on the search front, um he actually Actually, was a former searcher himself, and very successful. Both found the business and exited it, but realized, um, you know, by his own admission after the fact, that he didn't want to be, you know, the boss of. 30 or 40 people ever again after that wanted to run a really lean team and his energy and his capabilities kind of lended themselves more towards the search side than the actual operating side. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely takes a, a very special person to marry the two of those. And I feel fortunate uh, for the working relationship that I have with Alex. And, you know, also the fact that I kind of got to skip the process a little bit and come <laughs> in when we were already pretty close to identifying and, and finalizing the transaction.
1: Do you know that the numbers of any of you know, searchers that successfully are able to get a deal done?
0: Uh, only seven out of 10 actually comp- during the 24 months successfully complete a deal.
1: Okay. And then, so what, is there a process for like, they, they, obviously the, the money guys have to approve the deal, right? You just can't.
0: There is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, obviously they, they put some guardrails in place from the get go in terms of, you know, general deal size. Um, There, there are actually are a handful of banks that will fund the transaction at least partially via debt. Um, But you know, they've obviously got some restrictions on ratios and things like that. And then in general, I would say it's the, you know, recurring revenue profile, there's some industry preferences, things like that. Um, But for the most part, again, kind of very different than the, you know, traditional venture world. It's not necessarily that growth is what's being solved for. It's a a stable, highly recurring revenue base and a pretty strong thesis in terms of, you know, either in, improving operations, not the private equity, you know, mm-hmm. kind of come in and cut right. costs sort of thing, but really truly professionalizing operations. Yeah. Bring,
1: bring real value. Yep, right? exactly. Don't financially engineer something, <laughs>
0: right? You, you, you said it, not me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, even things like gap compliance, right? So like this, the business didn't have any real sure. gap approved financials or anything like that when we came in. So, um, in some cases you're really building something from the ground up and, you know, in other cases, uh, and maybe in parallel, you're saying, Hey, how can we take a really good concept and then put rocket boosters on it?
1: Mm -hmm. And so, um, can you share, not particularly like the, the peculiars of your deal, but like, what is the general search fund deal that, you know, gets struck between a searcher and the, the sponsors?
0: Yeah. Um, So typically I would say the, so one from a business size perspective, it's, you know, anywhere from one to $5 million in EBITDA, Mm -hmm. almost always uh, a complete you know, take over, maybe the seller will roll a little bit of equity. But Mm -hmm. in general, as you would imagine, new sheriff in town, it just makes it a lot easier for there to be a hard break or for the seller to have an advisory role, if anything. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the relationship with the LPs, um, there's a, you know, preferred equity stack, just like any other deal with a, a rate of return that's promised or mm-hmm. uh and then basically the searcher starts getting paid after that pref is is realized okay
1: got it so so there's basically a pref and is it like a cap table type of mm-hmm. situation so it's not like a profit sharing so there's like an ownership stake of x amount that's right that goes in. okay yep. so there's like a, a an irr threshold that yep. these guys have to hit and then i think above and beyond you share pro rata i'm guessing that's right got it okay yeah cool um all right. So let's talk about United Pet Care. All right. Yeah. So tell me what, what that was and what, what's, the, what's the business model and what's interesting about it today.
0: Yeah. You know, Pet Care is a, an incredible little business. Um, and honestly it was the business model that I was looking for that I didn't think existed in an industry that I already had kind of a, a personal draw to. And, uh, so basically we are an HMO for fur babies. So mm-hmm. kind of an innovative concept, at least within pet, um, we're an alternative traditional pet insurance. The way that we operate is we partner with a network of veterinary providers across the country and go pre-negotiate rates on behalf of our members. Um, so the value prop to the vets is you know we go source them high value sticky clientele uh the other side of the network we distribute exclusively as a voluntary benefit that employers offer their employees at time of open enrollment um typically that's an unsubsidized benefit some employers choose to subsidize it but you're kind of going through that same psychological motion as when you're picking dental vision other you know critical care things uh, benefits for your family we try to be you know right in that same uh, same psychological motion
1: okay and so like how is this different than uh like a pet insurance right that kind of yeah. like the with the trupanion's and you know the ones that you know what what are the other ones that are publicly traded trupanion and
0: uh so nationwide is one yeah. of the big ones nationwide. uh actually very few publicly traded trupanion i think is a, about the only one okay. ASPCA is mm-hmm. another big one um JAB has actually um the private equity firm mm-hmm. has been rolling up a number of pet insurance providers over the last 24 months or so um but those are in the benefit space those are kind of the big ones Um and then there's been a number of startups. Typically, they're all underwritten by the same like handful of two or three sure. providers. Right. And then it's just whatever, you know, color, the color palette you yeah. choose for the right. marketing. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So, uh, so the major difference is we don't underwrite. So we, we don't bear risk. We're not a regulated product. Um, that manifests itself in a number of different ways. But effectively, you know, we are just connecting the pet parent with the vet by virtue of this membership network. Um, so we're very careful in, you know, any marketing materials sure. to use any insurance language, things like that. Um, but that's the major difference. And, uh, you know, some of the implications of that, typically for pet insurance, you have to be property and casualty licensed to distribute it because mm-hmm. it is a an, uh, PNC and fully underwritten product. Um, also from a regulatory perspective, there are loss ratios and things like that that are, you know, kind of restricting the, the environment. Um, pet insurance writ large is still kind of finding its footing as an industry. So even with some of the uh, pretty wild trends in terms of the number of pets that have come into American homes And now the fact that they're not pets, they're fur babies, you know, they're riding around in the strollers. Millennials consider them to be starter children. Adoption rates are actually still pretty low. So right now only about four to five percent of overall pets are protected in the U.S., um, lagging sorely behind most of the rest of the developed world. Why is that? So, you know, right now a couple of different hypotheses, but right now the model typically doesn't offer a lot of value to the consumer. Uh, Reason behind that other than us, uh, nobody is negotiating rates with providers. So obviously in the human health insurance world, which has its limitations as well, sure. uh, a provider is going to, or I'm sorry, a payer is going to a provider and saying, hey, we're going to go bring you volume, but you have to accept, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. Right now, pet insurance companies actually pay vets at the cash rate. So the only way that they make money is by collecting more in premiums than you would have paid out as a consumer. And typically the way that that plays out is uh, through restrictions to the policies. So I don't know if you have pet insurance on your dogs, but if they're of a certain breed, so like labs, hip dysplasia is typically not covered. If you're, you know, short nose, anything related to respiratory. And then once something is, uh, you know, identified as a condition, either breed specific or pre-existing, there's, no coverage for it
1: okay so basically there's no so who benefits from the the um uh the payer requesting you know negotiated rates is the consumer benefiting the consumer the consumer would ultimately benefit from that from having insurance that's right right because their insurance will effectively cover it
0: Yep. right Mm -hmm. or lower the bill yeah right
1: or lower the bill um while so how so why so why do people buy it then if it's not if it, if it's if they're paying parity.
0: Yeah. I mean, the reality is most people don't, Um, but for those that do, it definitely is a, you know, it's just an exchange of dollars. So it's a more predictable flow of funds out as compared to, um, you know, the, the reality of a vet bill is it can be incredibly high and and very unexpected. And so there definitely is still value. And I tell anybody who listened for a certain percentage of pets and pet parents insurance is a fantastic product. True Pain is a good example. They have a really good 90% coverage, you know, 200, $250 deductible. and that's very different than our program. So if, you know, God forbid, Fluffy.
1: $250, that's what, that's what you pay, right? You go to it. it's yeah. a, a typical vet business.
0: It would be for like wellness and, right. and, and things like that. Sure. Um, but, you know, if you got into surgery being required or overnight stays, I mean, vet bills can get into the, you know, Thousands, five ten thousand dollars $10,000 very, very easily. And I think what a lot of people... Don't really appreciate is, you know, vets are doctors. They are on average incurring about $250,000 in medical debt. Mm-hmm. Um, the equipment that they use is either very similar it's or the same. Rate. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And so, it, you know, it's this kind of constant struggle in America. We want the best, uh, highest quality, but, you know, we don't want to pay for it. Um, and, you know, the other... Especially kind of, when it's cash. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, and, you know, the other sad thing is uh, pet health follows human health. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the chronic diseases that have kind of manifested in us over the course of the last couple of generations, chronic heart disease, diabetes, things like that are now actually starting to show up in our pets as well. Interesting.
1: Okay. And so United Pet Care is different in the fact that it offers a membership essentially saying, okay... When you come here, we are negotiating rates, right? And so, how does that look? And how does that, you know, manifest itself to the consumer? Yeah, does that mean is it like? basically professionalizing wellness plans is it like kind of that's a great way to
0: look at it okay yep absolutely and that's why i view our product as complementary um certainly at an employer level but definitely at an individual level with traditional insurance Um, because what we do uh, you know our ethos as a company is trying to reduce financial anxiety around a trip to the vet so that people go in more often so that the animal doesn't suffer during the interim and that all you know they receive more and better care Mm -hmm. Um, and so the beauty of the program is you can see on our website exactly what every provider is offering as a percentage off. And so you have a good sense of going in exactly what you're going to save and what it's going to cost you. So you don't have to pay the entire bill up front and then wait to get reimbursed because we don't reimburse. Yeah, uh, it's not like a super bill, right? That's right. Right. Everything just kind of appears at time of checkout. Um, But back to the wellness analogy, you know, we uh, will never cover 80, 90%. The plan is typically about 25 to 30% off of whatever the vet does in-house. So it's very different. Um, But if you you did, you know, for fortunate enough that you could afford both our plan and insurance, that bet bill gets reduced before you turn it over to your insurance company. So it would contribute less towards your out-of-pocket maximum, mm-hmm. maybe your copay, things like that. Yeah.
1: So you really are um, offering a really great preventative forward-looking type of behavioral change, really. I mean, I've seen so much, everyone loves their pet, but keeping them, I mean, we invested in a, in a, an appointment reminder system that you know of pet Mm -hmm. desk, you know, back, um, back I think in 2016 and the whole Genesis was, is just like, let's be more forward looking. Let's extend pets lives by actually creating a line of uh, engagement with the veterinary. And I think that that is the big disconnect is that people really don't have a good line of continuous wellness with their pet.
0: That's right. And then
1: all of a sudden, you know, you come back and you've got, you know, an, a mangled mouth when you could have done dental work you know once it worked
0: little problem becomes a big problem and then unfortunately a lot of times the way that plays out is it becomes a problem that's outside of the financial reach of the owner Mm -hmm. and so there's roughly 500,000 cases every year of financially motivated euthanasia and so that's when the vet identifies a procedure Um, that doesn't even count that can improve the pet's life this is just to save the pet's life right but that person can't afford it too expensive right yeah
1: yeah so tell me um you know, you, you started this business or you entered this business two years ago and you've been growing at a really significant clip. So tell me, what is it like operating this business, you know, during and post-COVID right now? I mean, that's got to be pretty, pretty interesting. And then talk a little bit about just how the, the veterinary market, for those unfamiliar with it, right now like how it's shifting right now because there is a lot of shifting and, and money moving around so I'd love to kind of get your take on that.
0: Yeah absolutely um, so to the first question it is it's better to be lucky than good for sure um, <laughs> and you know all credit to to Alex and the fund and doing the diligence but I think all of us underestimated the tailwinds that pet benefits would represent in this very specific like two to three year time period mm-hmm. so just with 23 million pets entering into American homes and then a lot of people you know foregoing or delaying, I heard someone say that babies are the new exotic animals, They're <laughs> super expensive and you got to be a little nuts to yeah. own one. Uh but you know now everybody's got fur babies and uh, my favorite stat now a greater percentage of the American workforce require vision or require pet care than require vision care.
1: Yeah, I and, wish I had more pets than as than like subtract kids and add more pets. Like <laughs> I've got 3 kids and one dog. I wish I had Three dogs and one kid. Yeah. I think there are <laughs>
0: exchanges where you can make that trade, but yeah. you shouldn't I mean, publicize it. My life would it. be a lot easier <laughs>
1: if I could just, you know, move some stuff around a yeah. little
0: bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Um. So that's, you know, that's been tailwinds that we certainly never expected, but I will say, you know, there's always a a countervailing force that's represented as uh, headwinds in the vet market, because for a a long two-year stretch, uh, if you were a good vet, you probably were on a 12 to, you know, sometimes even longer wait list or not accepting new patients. So that's now started to come into balance a little bit more. Um, Again, kind of a perfect storm of everybody adopted a pet, they typically were younger or because they had been bred and so that's the second most care intensive uh, phase of a pet's life and then also everybody was working from home so you know not to be gross but that vomit that would have gotten eaten up by the time he came home from work you see that now mm-hmm. you're a helicopter millennial pet parent and so now that's a vet visit where uh, ordinarily it never would have been mm-hmm. so that's now starting to subside um and trying to manage a um really a a two-sided market where the demand is so high on one, but then your constraint, the supply side is, you know, a little bit apprehensive about even accepting any new clients, let alone taking a haircut uh, on new clients. It's definitely been a very delicate kind of growth story to try to thread that needle over the course of the last two years. Yeah.
1: Well, I think anything's worth doing is hard, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, that's, it's a moat too. Um, I think that that's how I kind of remind myself is that you got to build, you know, build something with sustained value. Otherwise it's going to be just an Instagram ad blitz or something like that. So Mm -hmm. that's why the business and we have intentionally chosen the employer market to try to find those relationships that are a little bit more durable and a little bit higher barrier to entry to sell into a large corporation as opposed to, you know, selling to an individual consumer.
1: Yeah. And how I actually got in touch with you is I remember I was walking my dog and, you know, I was thinking random things and i was like well why why isn't there a, an employee benefit for for pets and i called my buddy brandon over at pets asking he says well there is right there is yeah. you should talk to aaron and it's actually like you know next door to you so i was like oh thanks for telling me but yeah. <laughs> i'd like to i like to have been in this business a while ago but um so what about as far as like the, the industry consolidation and how that's playing with the dynamics of patient care and i mean like we saw when we invested I think there was twenty seven thousand vets, if I remember correctly, and maybe three or four thousand back then were corporate yep, and now we're looking at a fifty percent i mean a consolidation rate within the next couple of years is that are those numbers correct or refresh me
0: yeah I, and you know the pace I think has slowed a little bit, so it will right. be interesting to see if they hit that fifty percent um, and it is uh so it, it's very interesting. I came from the human healthcare world originally, and just seeing how that's tailed. I mean, it was specialists in human healthcare, and then obviously all the hospitals mm-hmm. kind of uh, merging, and and now you're actually starting to see some of those. They're either divesting them, or they're realizing, hey, you actually have to have an operating thesis, and you can't just roll these things up and you know assume that it's gonna what? it's gonna pay off what into thesis? perpetuity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, especially when you're paying fifteen to twenty times earnings, which a lot of clinics yeah. kind of at the height of the pandemic, friends. Um, so you know what I like to say now is and this is not universally true. But if you have not been acquired by a consolidator, it's either because you don't want to or because you can't be. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of fiercely independent vets. And as you would imagine, probably 70, 75% of our network are independent vets. Folks that say, hey, I want to go toe to toe. I'm not ready to sell out. I don't want to be anybody's employee. Um, we help kind of level the playing field. Are, there, ca- are,
1: those, are those like single practice docs? You know, or- You know,
0: it can be single practice docs all the way up to, you know, there are quite a few that have established what you know, I would call kind of a, a strong presence within a market. Bad example because they just sold out. But AZ Pet Vet actually, they had 22 locations and oh, they wow. were independently owned. It was kind of a, a co-op or a collective owned by all the docs. But actually, kind of fascinating. Again, the bridge between human and pet care. Uh, Aspen Dental Group has rebranded as the Aspen Group, branching out into non-dental verticals, and they acquired uh, Interesting. AZ Pet Vet.
1: I so, did not know that.
0: Yeah, pretty recently.
1: Um, Okay. So there's, you think the consolidation's slowing down, which I agree it has to, right? With interest rates coming up, that's math. But I feel like there's just fundamentally just something that has been, I don't know if the industry can handle the growth, Mm. you know, and how I'm looking at it now is you know, there was a lot of unsophistication that probably still is within vet, like you go into a veterinary clinic that might have five or six docs, right? So like a decent size practice, smells funny, you know, the, you know, the waiting room's very small, they still have a ton of charts. You know, there's three receptionists that are dealing that are fielding like 15 people in the in the waiting room. Yep. Uh, constantly busy. Um, They have gmail.com email addresses, (laughs) 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 right? You know, like this is, and that's the industry, right? That's a lot. And then there's, you know, a lot more forward thinking ones and they have been rolled up. Um, And there's like, there's just, but like the, the rolled up ones, you know, there's not really like cost efficiency. I mean, that Mm -hmm. I see that's, you know, demonstrable enough to justify the valuations that they paid. Yep. (laughs) Right. I mean, you can you can back office accounting but it's really hard to back office hr and recruiting because these yep. markets are all very different yep. you know and then operationally within these vets there's just there's still just so much inefficiency absolutely right and then so like what is these inefficiency within the vets and how does that get broken
0: yeah I mean, I think there's really, there's kind of three ways that you win. You can increase the operating capacity of the clinic and that's addressing those inefficiencies. And that's everything from scheduling to client engagement. So obviously a pet desk where they sit very centrally, mm-hmm. that's a, a, a place where we really lend ourselves as well. Just the ongoing marketing to pet parents and, mm-hmm. and also quite honestly, patient and client selection. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, one of the other ways you win is increasing the average transaction. And so somewhat counterintuitively, even though we're taking a little bit off the top, or asking the vet to negotiate on the rates, Uh, on average, our pet parents spend about three times the national benchmark on pet care. Mm -hmm. And so you do get a lot of folks that come in and say, okay, check up and here's the four or five things. You know, it's a little bit like taking Mm -hmm. your car in and then you go, eh, maybe I can ignore those. And I'll just come back next year and see if they say it again instead of someone who's really proactively invested in their pet's care Um, and through insurance or through our products it's going to say yep i'm going to take care of those things and and get them on the meds and go do the labs and Mm -hmm. the types of things that ultimately are you know much better for the animal but also financially creative for the vet practice right
1: and so you're getting better clients high more high margin clients right, right that are coming in and then but what about just the the capacity issue i mean like it's i don't know if the answer is we need more appointments right i think the answer is is how do we get How do we see things through? How do we, you know, I guess... See more patients in the one clinic. What is it? I mean,
0: yeah, and and you know there is a very real kind of structural limitation in terms of the number of vets. So I think now I don't remember the last statistic, but it's like nine or ten average open positions for every available veterinarian. Unemployment rates are like less than one percent. So even in a historically tight labor market, vets are a couple standard deviations lower than that. Um, but there's also quite a lot of burnout in the industry, and actually it's one of the worst for mental health for for a whole number suicide. Of yeah, suicide is. Um, there, you know, big support groups and things that have come up. Um, you know, I think a couple of ways that that solves. Uh, you know, I, I think again, very akin to human healthcare, empowering non-veterinary. Uh, technicians and veterinary nurses to see a broader range of patients. Uh, I'm painting with a little bit of a broad brush, but a lot of veterinarians insist on seeing every patient themselves and doing kind of that full breadth of work. And that just is not sustainable. So there are some very good, um, you know, kind of practice benchmarks around the ratio of vet techs and veterinary nurses to doctors. That's certainly a place where I see an opportunity
1: reskilling
0: to actually staff up, up upskill exactly, and kind of broaden that range. And I tell you, if it's, intersected with obviously the right hiring, the right staff, but also the right technological support so that that pet parent feels like they're getting a premium experience. I mean, you don't think about it at the dentist where you have a hygienist that's seen it, as long as you know that you're getting the report and kind of... No one cares. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so I think that's kind of the, that's certainly one old behavior that needs to be, you know, loosened a little bit. And I do think that's where having, you know, professional investors and operators coming in can kind of help uh, move that forward a little bit.
1: Yeah. What do you think about the new type of clinics, the de novo clinics that are coming up like the small doors, but that seems like that's a cultural disruptor.
0: Absolutely. Of of the clinics. Absolutely. And, you know, i there are a couple, obviously there are a number of them that have popped up, but, um, that are seeing really good, uh, uptake and, you know, retention rates for their vets. So uh, a couple of buddies of mine, one good vets out of Chicago, they actually have a shared partnership model. So the mm-hmm. vet gets some skin in the game, kind of de-risk that entrepreneurial operating model. So you're not just hanging a shingle with no hope at somebody right. where you have that back office support, but you also can participate in the upside. Um, and you know, honestly, it's also been a big, um, the way that veterinarians are treated and that staff are treated um another friend of mine opera uh, operates they're called Splut out of denver and they do Splut. yeah they yeah. do urgent care um also primary care I as well i couldn't think of one
1: business that needed a rebrand
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the sound that you make when you boops a dog's nose i yeah. think that's the splute <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, You know, just kind of thinking about the model differently and also their approach to staff retention and kind of putting the veterinary staff at the center, because a big drain on veterinarians is having that revolving door from a staff perspective. And so keeping them happy, treating them right, compensating them above market. Mm -hmm. um, Those are certainly places where I think the model has started uh, that, that new age model. And they can do that because they're more productive overall because it's Mm -hmm. tech enabled because they've got the waiting room experience down, they've got good patient flow. So it's really difficult to have one without the other. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, margins in the industry are terrible. So it's not that these high fees are actually, I mean, the vets are getting rich. It's like, eight to 10, 12% margin. And a big part of that is because there's just this operational inefficiency Bloat. that's yeah. a dredge. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's chicken and egg, but you can start to pay everybody better and treat everybody better when you know that you're able to get throughput that's 30 or 50% better than a typical clinic. And that's where I see, you know, they're varying degrees, but that's where I see these new kind of new age type of de novo clinics really being successful, even down to like the site design, right? And mm-hmm. being very intentional Totally, about Yeah. That. Very
1: intentional. I mean, it's, it's so funny just Uh, I just, I've never seen, um, a front office of a vet work efficiently, you know? It's just just like, it's, it's, it's a battleground. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's absolutely
0: right. Yeah.
1: Um, so if I'm taking a look at, if you're taking a look at 10 years from now, right. And you, you know, if we're going to say like, you know, you're going to throw a, throw a prediction out there and you're looking at the tea leaves, Mm. where do you see the market as far as independence consolidators and de novos? And like, how do you see like, you know, them taking the market and what, how big of a slice do each of them have?
0: And so I definitely think you'll continue to see. Consolidation, but I do think it'll be a much more even split between these new kind of smaller, leaner players. Now, the ultimate question, I mean, 10 years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, probably several of those de novos are going to start to sell out to the consolidators anyway, right? Ugh, so, that, I mean, you know, it's just how it works, right? Take a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Take a
1: good thing and ruin it with the, private equity. The
0: old last mover advantage, yeah. right? That's the, yeah. <laughs> What's your number? Yeah. Um, so I do think that that consolidation is going to continue to increase. However, I think you'll And this has really already been true. You'll start to see uh, or continue to see more and more of those individually branded and locally driven strategies. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, um, and, you know, not to say anything bad about Banfield, but I would say it's much easier to earn a bad national reputation in pet care than it is to earn a good one yeah because that's <laughs> right. such a personal and sensitive relationship and you mm-hmm. know you know people who have that passionate relationship with dr so-and-so at their local vet that's really hard to kind of mcdonald's mm-hmm. so i think what it'll look like is consolidation will continue and it'll probably continue to be you know maybe even 50 60 percent higher however i do think it'll that look and feel will continue to be much more bespoke and it'll be a lot more tech enabled. So you yeah. still feel like you're getting that local clinic. And honestly, I, I hope this to be true. It be I believe it to healthy, be true. Right? Yeah.
1: It's going to be like, you know, kind of tech enabled urgent care type of
0: feel. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but I also truly believe that the veterinarian will play a much better uh, greater role in terms of their participation and their say at how the clinic is run, but then also their financial relationship as well. So mm-hmm. they're definitely, um, vets are an incredible group of people who have probably the least amount of business training during their graduate school. You think doctors are bad, you know, that's, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> right. it's another, it's another, uh, standard deviation over. I think vets know they're bad though. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's probably the biggest difference. Is yeah. they're not, you know, yeah, that's right. That's probably more an ego yeah. thing yeah. than Physi- training. Physician doctors, totally. they really
1: think that they're good, that <laughs> they're terrible.
0: That's right. Um, so I think you'll start to see a lot more of these hybrid models where you say, hey, to the vet rather than go accept, you know, 90 grand to work for Banfield when you're, you've got a quarter million dollars in student debt. Why don't you, the demand is there, right? You can see that the trends are in support, but you don't want to go all the way out on that entrepreneurial operating ledge yourself. So finding that kind of facilitated way to go to market where you still have a lot of autonomy and control and participation in the upside, but also have that supporting model of a Mm -hmm. practice management group or, you know, one of these uh, chains that are thinking a little bit differently about ownership.
1: Cool, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on. We really appreciate it. David, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see uh, how this turns out in a
0: couple of years. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, a couple canned questions. What's your favorite book?
0: Oh man. Uh, so now I'm the recency bias. Uh, we're expecting twins in two weeks, so mm-hmm. I'd say the most practical book is uh, "Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Twins" that yeah. <laughs> that I've read. Um, Man, favorite book is a, that's a big question. Another recent one, but I just read a book called The Cold Start Problem, which is very wow. germane to our business yeah, by Andrew a, that's Chen. That's a big one, yeah. Um, definitely took an incredible amount of that over the, the last year or so.
1: A mm-hmm. uh, couple twins advice for you. Night nanny. Yes. It's expensive, but do it.
0: Got super lucky. My sister's actually a nurse and has done some night nursing work. So I <laughs> twisted the friends and family arm. She's going to come <laughs> live with us for a little while. Yeah,
1: and If you really want to, you know, go do it, the snoo let the artificial intelligent bassinet do the work for you.
0: I've heard of this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I just bought two snooze for two co-founders that just had babies because their sleep was very important.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you write that off? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know.
1: Uh, And then what is the best piece of business advice you ever received?
0: You know, I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I think uh, I I tend to be a a pretty analytical guy Mm -hmm. and, I think one of the things that I try to constantly remind myself is the alignment in the mission and the role that employees play and, Mm -hmm. and just people, the stakeholders in general. So I would say, um, you know, probably twofold. One, your employees are your first and your most important stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, the analogy of the walking behind the tractor. So, as an executive, to be as close as possible to the output, to really mm-hmm. understand the feedback that your consumers are getting, to not get stuck in your own kind of echo chamber of, mm-hmm. you know, you can grow, but are you losing sight of uh, adding value and delivering? Um, I think those are probably the two most important lessons. I love it.
1: Love it. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday on all your favorite platforms, YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. If you like it, please subscribe, leave a review, tell a friend, and we will see you next week. Thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing.